is Derek McKenzie. I'm a soil scientist in the Department of Renewable Resources in the Faculty of Agriculture, Life, and Environmental Sciences at the University of Alberta. And Amber Kenyon asked me to fill in on Wednesday. And uh, at first I said, heck no, because I'm a lecturer. So I, I'm, a, I'm a lecturing soil scientist at the University of Alberta. And, and so to give you guys a talk without any slide as backup makes me feel a bit naked. Right, so I'm feeling a, a little underprepared. But I told Amber, I'm like, well, I like a challenge, and I, I do have some interesting current research to talk to about, and then to engage with producers. And and all this research is funded by uh, results-driven agricultural research, and so it's important for me to to interact with producers and to to get an idea of what needs to be done. What kind of research do you guys need in order to? make your practices more efficient and more economically feasible. So, right, so as the topic of today's workshop is the past, present, and future of sustainable agriculture, I thought I would start off by giving you a little bit of uh, a historic journey of my trip towards soil, si towards soil health research, um, where my lab is currently at with research into soil health and where I think we need to go in the future. And so to start off, I'm gonna go way back in time to 19, 96, I did my master's degree in forest soils at Simon Fraser University. And then I went down to the University of Montana where I did a PhD in forest soils again, looking at forest ecosystems recovering from wildland fire. And during that time, I was introduced to charcoal as a residue of fire and its uh, important interactions with soil biogeochemistry. And then I came to the University of Alberta as a postdoc and I started doing research on land reclamation. So my PhD research was really looking at uh, ecosystem function and soil function. And I started doing land, land reclamation research in the Athabasca oil sands region where the question was similar. It's like, how do we, how do soils, so my PhD work was how do soils recover from wildfire? How are they evolved to recover from wildfire and, and stay healthy and stay functioning? And when I went to land reclamation research, my questions were really about how do we build functioning soil to support ecosystems? Because I truly believe that soil is the foundation of life. And so therefore I'm gonna sort of tell you that's gonna lead into how I believe that um, in terms of sustainable agriculture, soil is gonna be the foundation, of, soil health is gonna be the foundation of sustainable agriculture. About five years ago, a colleague from Alberta Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge asked me to be part of a project looking at biochar fed to cattle to reduce methane emissions, and specifically to look at the effect of biochar-loaded manure on soil biogeochemistry, soil fertility, carbon sequestration, and greenhouse gas emissions. And so biochar is basically that man-made surrogate for charcoal. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting. Let's look at what happens when, when biochar passes through the gut of an animal and is deposited in, this, in the soil. And there's lots of theoretical framework behind supporting this kind of research in the prairie. So prairie ecosystems used to burn frequently. They used to burn frequently. And black churnizem soils, the reason they're black, you know, research from the University of Saskatchewan has shown that the reason they're black is because they're full of charcoal from this historic wildfire events. And it occurred to me that you know, bison grazing on the prairies after fire probably consumed a fair amount of ash, which actually might have been a natural salt lick for them. Um, and in doing so, they probably consumed some amount of biochar charcoal as well that they then 
excreted and left on the prairie landscape. And so I thought that this work was really interesting. And so um, I had a, a PhD student who is just finishing this work right now. And uh, if you want sort of any more details on that work, uh, we could talk about it afterwards. It wasn't what I was going to talk about today, but I just wanted to um, sort of give you a little insight into my journey into agriculture and soil health. And so basically that's how I started my research journey into soil health research. And I sort of, I think of it as, as it's not that different from some of the questions I was asking previously about wildland soils and soil function and, re, and reclaiming soil function in the Athabasca oil sands, right? So I think that um, in agriculture, we're looking at agroecosystems and soil function is the basis of, as a functioning agroecosystem. And so I think they're related. And so really, Soil health is a metaphor. So this is this sort of concept was coined by Henry Jansen from uh, again AAFC in in Regina. I don't know he's in Lethbridge too. Um, soil health is a metaphor for a soil function for a given purpose. So if your soil function is to produce crops, that's its function, and and you want to determine and measure and quantify that it's healthy and that your practices are potentially increasing the health and not reducing the health. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But so that, and, and I sort of came to, the, to my interest in regenerative farming and doing research in regenerative farming and sustainable agriculture came from watching the documentary Kiss the Ground with Woody Harrelson. And I'm sure many of you have seen that. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's great. It's really good. Uh, and, and I loved it. I love the documentary. And I, I teach Introduction to Soil Science every fall at the University of Alberta. And I have 150 students who are brand new to soils every year. And it's a required course. And so a lot of them are not there because they're interested. They're there because the, their program, their degree program is telling them they have to be there. And so I, I, I struggle with that. But what I do is I, I try to bring a lot of passion to teaching soil science. You know, I tell them this is a new language with new concepts, but the best part about soil science is that it integrates chemistry, biology, and physics into one place, and it makes it all applied, right? So it's, it's, not, it's no fun to learn about redox in a chemistry course, but I think it's fun to learn about redox in the context of microbial metabolism of nutrients in the soil. It's applied, and it makes sense. You can wrap your head around it. Um, and so I make all of my students in Introduction to Soil Science, the very first thing we do in class is watch Kiss the Ground. We used to watch a movie called Dirt, the movie, which you can also find on YouTube for free. It's all, it's, it was narrated by, by sort of a, a movie icon from the 80s that, that I definitely had a crush on, Jamie Lee Curtis. Big crush on Jamie Lee. She narrates this movie, so it was automatically my favorite, not only that it was about soil science, right? So that's another good one. And so I, I, I make the students to sort of develop some context for soil science. Why is it important? Why is it critically important to human health? Because it's the foundation of life. And uh, I, love, I love teaching that soil science class. And I love trying to inspire students to have, you know, at least somewhat similar level of passion for soils as I do. It, it doesn't always work. So I always, a handful of students, it works. The middle of the class, they're kind of okay. In the bottom of the class, they don't really care. But they never were going to, so what can you do? So that's where I came from. That's my background is, so I'm a research scientist and a lecturer. So as a professor at university, I do, I do research and I lecture. And my research area specialization is soil biogeochemistry. So I'm, I'm not an agrologist. I don't study pedology. I don't study soil physics, soil chemistry. I, I don't exclusively study fertility. I study the interaction of microorganisms in soil and their, their metabolic chemistry. So nutrient transformations, carbon sequestration, carbon storage, 
greenhouse gas emissions. And so I'm here today to tell you about how my research group is, is approaching soil health in the province and share details on some recently funded projects with you guys. And I'm here to solicit feedback from you as producers as to whether or not I'm on the right track towards answering questions that are directly relevant to you, right? Because my goal is not to sit in this sort of academic ivory tower and just do research that is, has a theoretical framework and doesn't have an applied framework, right? I work very closely with results-driven agricultural research funding agency, specifically to work with you guys to try to ensure that the research we're doing is um, generating answers that are useful for you. And so uh, since I'm not a producer and I have no experience in the day-to-day -day activities of a farm, which I kind of regret. So as a university student, I chose to go tree planting to make money to pay for school instead of working on a, on a mixed dairy farm in southern Quebec, which I also could have done, which would have made me much better at speaking French, which would have been good. But uh, I, I chose to go tree planting, and, and I kind of regret that. So I, I don't know farmers. So basically, please be frank and honest with me about what I get right and what I get wrong so that we can sort of work together towards solutions. So the first project I want to tell you about is how we're measuring soil quality and soil health from a series of benchmark sites across the province of Alberta. And so, yeah, so there's, from 1997 to 2007, agriculture, or Alberta Agriculture and Forestry collected samples from 42 benchmark sites across the province to analyze soil quality. And so these 42 benchmark sites are in each eco-district across the province from southern Alberta all the way up to Peace River area. And initially, they were just measuring parameters such as uh, bulk density, fertility, sodicity, uh, electrical conductivity, pH, those real basic physical chemical parameters, total carbon, total nitrogen, organic matter content, to look at soil quality across the province. And they did that for 10 years, which represents a great baseline for trying to look at changes today. It represents a baseline of soil. But what they, the thing that really got my grab my attention and my interest about this data set was that they archive soil samples from these 10 years of sampling. They archive soil samples. And so they have about 4,000 half-quart jars of soil in a, in a warehouse in Edmonton that weighs approximately two tons. And I have to move this archive by hand from Edmonton to the Breton plots for storage so that we can start using them. And if anybody is in Edmonton with a forklift and wants to help me, I would appreciate that because otherwise I'm literally gonna do it by hand. I'm gonna have to pick them up at the warehouse in Edmonton, put them on a trailer, drive them to Breton, pick them up again, and I don't really wanna pick up four tons of soil, but I will. Um, but this, this, the beauty of this data set, or the, the benefit of this data set is that we can look at carbon quality in archived soil samples through time. And we can also potentially look at microbial diversity, so fungal and bacterial diversity in archived soil samples to try to get an idea of, are these, are these properties changing with, with time? And so one of the questions from this data set that we'd like to ask is, you know, in the 90s was roughly when, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, roughly when no-till farming was broadly adopted in the province. And so we should expect to see an increase from samples from the 90s to samples to 2020. We should see, expect to see an increase in carbon. But not only an increase in total carbon, but we want to look at the different fractions of carbon, right? So total carbon is, is elemental carbon. It's just, the, it's just all molecules of carbon in sort of one measurement. And what you can do is fractionate soils and look for different types of carbon in different soil fractions. And that gives you information on carbon stability in the soils. And so what we're hoping for is not just more 
carbon content in the soils, but more stable carbon in the soils, because that truly represents carbon sequestration. And that would help inform the numbers on carbon credits for no-till farming to make sure they're accurate and make sure they're not being undercut, right? So that we're storing carbon soil. So that's one thing we want to do with that archive. And so in 2018, I learned about the program, the archive soil samples, and we, we made a proposal to Alberta Funding Consortium, um, which was, and the funding was later picked up and managed by Results Driven Agricultural Research to resample these sites and, and add measures of organismal diversity and carbon stability in order to try to say something about soil health, right? So initially they're measuring physical chemical parameters only, and we said, let's, let's add organismal diversity and carbon quality to these, to these measures to try to say something about function, to try to say something with the idea that healthy soil should be to have diverse microorganisms and be sequestering carbon, be storing carbon. And so we resample these sites in 2019-2020 and have some preliminary results, which I'd be happy to share again after, you know, in a QA session afterwards. So this is work that was done by a master's student and a lab tech in my lab, and they were sort of still analyzing the data. And, and of course, we have to move these archive soil samples, and I have a PhD student who is going to start doing the carbon chemistry on not only the most recent soil collection, but also the archive collection. The second project I'd like to tell you about is a database for soil health that once created will use machine learning and artificial intelligence to analyze the baseline of soil health across the province. And so the data that we collected from the Soil Quality Monitoring Project, so that's the, the government's sites from 1997 to 2007 and our resampling, it's called the Soil Quality Monitoring Project. We're gonna take all of that data and we're working with data scientists at the University of Alberta who do to create a database of that and they're adding not only the physical chemical parameters, but the biological diversity. And basically they're just trying to get as much data as they can to make this a big data concept, right? And so soil science in the past is, is soil science is data limited, right? Because when you're, when you're doing soil analysis, you don't get instant numbers. It's not like plant ecology or forestry where you go out and you count trees. You're like one, two, three aspen. There's three aspen on my plot. One, two, three, four, five spruce in my plot. You have an instant number, but you spend all summer in the field counting trees. In soil science, you spend a week sampling and in the field and you spend a month in the lab doing lab work. So partitioning that sample into 10 different subsamples and then extracting them for nutrients, measuring pH, measuring bulk density, all these different things. And at the end of a month, you get numbers. And so what we need to do now is compile all of that data into a large publicly accessible database that hopefully in the future that producers like you guys will be able to uh, enter your own soil testing data into this. There'll be a, a publicly available data capture system. You can enter your own data into this so that we can develop an app that will help tell us. So we use machine learning to look for correlations in climate and, and management styles and productivity and all of these different data streams um, with the goal in the future of hopefully saying that or the app being able to generate information on management strategies. So if you want to, in, so you put in a postal code and that'll sort of highlight a, a geographic region that has, you know, a bunch of data from, from the database that we're working on, plus your neighbors incorporating data, plus yourself incorporating data. And you'll be able to put that, go to the app and say, I'm next year, I'm, I'm putting canola on this field and I want to do it in a regenerative way, you know, and it'll say, here's the best practices in your region. Here's the best practices, here's the rates, here's the best practices, here's, you know, what, we, what the, the app is maybe gonna try to predict um, climate a little bit as well. And so it's gonna be a, a farm management tool to sort of help generate or to help improve soil health. 
And so that, and basically meaning carbon sequestration and reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and increasing diversity. Yeah, so that work on a database has just begun and I'm gonna create a web page. and I have, I have business cards to hand out. If anybody wants to contact me for information, I have business cards to hand out. Um, and so theoretically, we're gonna, we're gonna create a, a website for this database that pe and a newsletter that you can subscribe to by email and then we can sort of let you know where we're at with this because we'll probably, we'll do some beta testing and we're, we always need partners to help us with, with testing and, and input of data. And we're also gonna par partner with the you know, major data labs, the major analytical, soil analytical labs in the, in the province like A&L and Elements to maybe use some of their data as well, some of their archive data as well to populate the soil health um, database. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a work in progress. So, so now to the future. We need data on how regenerative practices may reduce greenhouse gases, increase carbon storage, and increase uh, biodiversity, and therefore soil function. And so right now, the, the data that we have is really looking at the current state of soils across the province. So it's a baseline measurement. And what we need to know now is we need data on how different practices, like, like some of the different organic or regenerative farming practices or rotational grazing practices that you guys are using, how are those potentially gonna improve soil health compared to conventional practices? And I'm not trying to be biased, I, I, I look at the data. And so if the data says that this conventional practice is just as good as this regenerative, that's great, that's what I'll tell you. Um, but if it shows that this regenerative practice you know, is giving you the same productivity, the same economics, but, and yet you're actually storing carbon, so maybe you're der deriving some more carbon credits in a future carbon economy, and you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and so you're having an impact on global climate change, you're, you're helping to mitigate global climate change through these practices, then that's the kind of information I'd like to be able to give to you, and we need data on um, how these regenerative practices compare to conventional. So that's sort of our, our, our next step. So we're part we need to partner with producers to do research, on what this means with comparisons of compost and synthetic fertilizer, monocrops versus polycrops, cow-calf pairs and rotational grazing versus compared to uh, contained pens and potentially liquid manure management. I have a PhD student right now who's really interested in looking at, can you use, can you, yeah, liquid manure management, how is liquid manure management in the field affecting soil health and carbon sequestration? And so, and the other thing with the database, there's many research teams across the country are working on soil health and soil health databases, but there's no high level coordination. So the other thing that I think we need is some high level leadership in, in, in compiling the soil health data across the country, right? So right now we have a national invent forest inventory, but we don't have a national inventory of soil health. And there's many, many research labs that are working on this, but in isolation and separation. And if we had an organization to compile this data and to sort of coordinate the data, we would generate a, a, a larger soil, a national level soil database. And eventually global level soil databases are where we're going with this. And so uh, Soil Health Institute already exists in the USA and I talked to the director of that institute about having national offices across the globe. So for example, the SHI USA, SHI Canada, SHI Brazil, in order to help coordinate some of this research and compile the data. Uh, and so right now I'm working to, uh, with the um, soil scientists across Canada as part of the Canadian Society of Soil Scientists to create a working group to talk about how to move forward with this sort of higher level management. I'm just, so I'm gonna wrap up. So I'm, I'm standing in between you guys and lunch, so I'm gonna wrap up. Um, but in closing, I just want to acknowledge my, my funding partners, Alberta Funding Consortium, Results Driven Agricultural Research, and the database work is being funded by Alberta Innovates 
SAFDEC project, and SAFDEC stands for Smart Agriculture Food Digitization and something something, and I always forget the AC at the end. I always forget it, so. But it's, the acronym is SAFDEC, it's Alberta Innovates. And the University of Alberta, my colleagues there, and the, the opportunity to work with you guys is great, so thank you very much. Right. And, and I know personally, I had a hayfield catch fire one spring. Yeah. And you could see that line in the production. Better or lower? Higher. Higher, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. interested in some comments on, you know, I, I think that burning cycle has been ignored because it emits carbon into the environment. So we don't like burning stuff and all those things. Right. There is a benefit to that site. Right. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, biochar is sort of like a, a pet research project of mine. It's, it's uh, I've been working on biochar since my PhD work. And and yeah, it, it's, an, it's an important carbon substrate in soils that we, have, we haven't allowed our you know, agricultural soils to burn. And we don't really like it when wildland soils burn either, although we can't do anything about it. But nobody really likes using fire as a tool because it's dangerous and it's hard to manage and there's, you know, these carbon offsets to the atmosphere. So, um, but it does, like all of the, all of the global literature points to the idea that, that charcoal and biochar have an effect on soil biogeochemical, um, soil biogeochemical processes. And so biochar increases water retention in soils. It, 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 it's habitat for microorganisms. It sequesters carbon into a stable form and helps helps stabilize carbon in the soil and it it's a food size it's also a food source for microorganisms and and it has an effect on the biogeochemistry now in the, the literature on the on the fertility factor of biochar is highly variable depending on where you are so soils in the tropics which are already really depleted in nutrition it increases fertility but when you put biochar into a black chernozem soil, it, it initially reduces fertility because it's already the most fertile soil in the world, right? Like our black chernozem soils in Alberta are, are one of the most fertile soils in the world. So we're really lucky. And I think, you know, the, the, the state of our, our soil health is very high in Alberta. Um, but the question is, can we keep it that high? I think that's what sustainable agriculture, and, and in my opinion, sustainable agriculture and, and the soil health concept says, you know, how do you maintain healthy soils through time so that your, your agriculture is sustainable, right? And so it's like, I always make the analogy with the human body, right? If you, it's, it's much easier to maintain your good health than it is to have poor health and try to come back from that, right? And so we're at a point where we still have very healthy soils, but you know, the literature you know, clearly tells us that if we just continue with tillage and synthetic fertilizers and herbicides nonstop, we will reduce that function over time. So biochar has a place. And so the problem with biochar is, is I mean, it's, so there's new markets available. So I have a partner in Edmonton who's making biochar out of um, demolition wood waste. It's a very clean product. He's, you know, it's available for use in the field. But dry biochar is very hard to apply. Like I tried to put dry biochar on some research sites for this, uh, for the um, manure biochar project. And we look like coal miners by the end of the day. Like we carefully weighed 40 kilograms of biochar and we put it on this, four by 10 meter plot and we, and we dumped it out and a big cloud of it poofed away and then they tilled it into the ground and another big cloud of it poofed away. So I'm like, why do we measure 
40 kilograms. Like we should have measured 50 because we probably lost some to just air. Just it just part particulate matter just picked up and flew away. So, you know, so we're looking at, you know, can you we're looking right now, we're doing some compost trials with grow and with a couple different farmers in Westlock Camrose and Leduc area. And we're looking at different blends of compost and comparing that with synthetic fertilizer. And the blends of compost have things like biochar, wood ash, and gypsum in different combinations in them to see if one of those blends can generate um, the appropriate level of fertility for crop growth, but also sequester carbon and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what we're doing this summer. And so that's a great place for biochar is if you can incorporate it into compost. There's lots of research showing that if you co-compost biochar and compost together, you get a much better product. Both the biochar and the compost are better quality for, for agricultural um, purposes. And they're much easier to apply to the field, right? You get a, a manure spreader and, and they're much easier to apply. The other option would be maybe some kind of like liquid fertilizers, like a biofertilizer with charcoal, uh, with a biochar in, in a liquid media that you could spray. Um, and there's some really interesting, I've had some, some interesting ideas in the past about trying to create a, a bio-fertilizer, bio-pesticide, specifically for club root, where we inoculate you know, certain bacteria into this, bio, into this liquid biochar fraction. The bacteria, the bacteria are, would be really effective at, at containing that protist that causes club root disease, and then you'd have this bio-fertilizer, bio-pesticide that you'd apply instead of just relying on genetic developments, but um, it didn't get picked up, unfortunately. But if you guys think that's interesting, I know, um, I can keep trying on that, you know, and it's, it's, you know, and so that's why I'm sort of here to solicit input from you guys, right? Because I work with my, my partners and I learn every day, I learn more about their production. Um, and I told my, my partner, Colby Hansen, we're going to meet later this afternoon up in Westlock, uh, that I was going to come work for him this summer. My, uh, the university faculty almost went on strike and I was looking at not having any work for the summer. I said, Hey, I'm going to come live in the bunkhouse and work for you. And he's like, doesn't pay much. I'm like, better than nothing. Right, and then I would gain a lot of experience. So I, I love going up to Colby's farm and learning about his practices and working with him and doing research that I hope is gonna benefit him and you guys. Is there any other questions? Yeah. What rate do we see reduction in greenhouse? Right. In green in reduction in greenhouse gases or yeah so it's it's really variable and it really depends on the soil type that you're working with and a lot of the literature because it's short-term research they they put way more biochar than you would ever operationally put on a field right so they're sometimes they're putting up to like 30 tons per hectare right where like 15 15 tons per acre a biochar at a thousand dollars a ton, you're never going to do that. No one's ever going to do that. And so, but the lit, it shows that it drives the function. And so it's hard to say, I, I think there's no sort of standard answer that I could give you for that. I sort of, it always, it would always come down to what soil are you working in and what crop are you growing? What climate are you in for what kind of reduction you could expect? Oh yeah. So with the with the livestock research was interesting. They didn't. So in some other places in the world, it showed that there was an increase in growth in the livestock with biochar additions, but we didn't see that here. And I think that the main finding from that research was that the 
that the quality of diet for livestock in North America was just too good. And so that if you're in uh, another area of the world where the, where the forage quality is much lower, biochar makes a difference in, in growth. But it didn't make a difference for methane emissions or growth in Canada, well, in, in the trials that we did in Lethbridge. I was just gonna say that with biochar, you know, instead of open burning, when you make biochar um, in, a, in a controlled environment, basically you're not releasing as much CO2 into the environment because you're doing indirect combustion of it or indirect pyrolysis. And so you can, you can use that process to heat buildings in the winter too, right? And so what we're looking at now is this sort of this idea where you can have these satellite compost facilities all around the, all around the city of Edmonton, taking Edmonton SSO and making compost all around um, you know, the outskirts of the city and then being able to, to um, deliver that compost out to the agricultural lands outside of that, right? So to try to get around at least some of the transportation costs of it. And, you know, it would be interesting if you had a, a, a compost and a biochar manufacturer on the same site. We're at a recycling facility, like in Westlock Recycling, you have a compost place and you have a biochar guy and the biochar guy is heating all the buildings on site all winter long. And, per, and generating this material that's then going into the uh, co-composting. Um, it's a real win-win situation, right? And so I always tell my students too that, that there's no waste in an ecosystem. There's no waste. Someone, one, some organism's waste is another organism's resource. And so if humans, we could be more like that and we could just keep using our waste as a resource, uh, we would do better. Yeah, back to Wild Heart, I was just wondering, do you have any data or any idea how often the same piece of ground would get hit by the like in a prairie or? Yeah, yeah. So from what I've read, so it's, you know, records in the literature, from what I've read, the prairies, the conventional thinking is that the prairies used to burn every three to five years. It'd just be a light surface fire and it would just, yeah, you know, carbonize all that. Um, no, it wouldn't be, but yeah, it wouldn't be hot. It yeah, would have low intensity, but it would, it would just, yeah, deposit ash and biochar. And so that every five years, that's happening every five years, over tens of thousands of years, that biochar accumulates in the soil, right? So the research in Saskatchewan was suggesting that 50% of the total carbon in a black chernozem is biochar, up to 50%. So it was anywhere between 25 and 50% of the carbon was charcoal or black carbon or biochar. And those words are all kind of related, but I always separate charcoal for like a wildfire produced material and biochar for a man-made material. But not everybody does that, so there's semantics, but anyway, yeah. Do we know if the intensity of the fire was hot enough to completely burn all the biomass, or did it just take out the old residue and things that were dry, but yeah, it, trees and plants and shrubs that could survive in the intensity fire? Yeah, so um, it, it probably would just take out the residual litter and, and it wouldn't kill the root balls, right? So those perennial grass would just come back from root balls. Um, and, it, and fire doesn't sterilize soil. It's a big misconception. Soil is very well insulated material. And so if the surface temperature is 600 degrees C in a hot wildfire in a forest, at 10 centimeters below the soil surface, it's, it's down to 40 degrees C. So, right, so soil is a very well insulated material. So it's a misconception that fire would sterilize soil. Yeah, your root balls are still there, so all your perennial grasses just come right back from that right away. Yeah.
No, we don't know that, and that's something that the that's something that the the database, so the soil quality monitoring project established, and this uh, new soil health database that we're trying to build might be able to answer questions like that, because um, we can we can quantify black carbon in these archived soil samples too, right? And so, um, we, yeah, we haven't been putting that very specific carbon substrate into the soils again, and so and it does it is degradable over time, right? So so microorganisms, so biochar is resistant to decomposition, but it does decompose over time, right? Because if it didn't, we'd all be standing neck deep in biochar in the world, right? It's like if, yeah. So we've definitely been losing it from, from for the last 100 years by not burning regularly, we've been losing it, but yeah, I mean, so the database may be able to pinpoint, that's what we're looking at for the baseline of health, and we're trying to say, you know, here's our health today, and, and maybe if we can find some remnant prairies, we could say it used to be like this, and we've, you know, it's, we've lost this much stable carbon and black carbon, so therefore there's, you know, there's, we could measure degradation, but. Um, but I think that the, you know, looking forward, if we can figure out a, a management practice like compost with biochar, that we just start adding that every year, we don't have to add a lot of it, we just add a couple hundred kilograms per acre every year, and eventually that's gonna come back up. And so that's the sort of the research, the future research goals that we're trying to do, okay. Amber's giving me the wrap it up. Wrap it up, we're done. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>